In this episode of Coffee with Closers, I'm sitting down with Godard Apol, the co-founder and CEO of G2. G2 is the go-to platform for anyone looking for technology and software reviews. During my conversation, Godard shared his story of building multiple tech companies, including his first venture, Big Machines, which was almost bankrupt, and he was able to turn that company around and successfully sell it to Oracle for nearly a half a billion dollars. And most recently, the notable exit would be Steelbricks, which was acquired by Salesforce. And he shared his experience in building those companies, as well as his story of building G2 and lessons learned from all these experiences. So stay tuned for this conversation with Godard Abel. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers, where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, Gordon, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closer. I've been looking forward to this for a very, very long time. Yeah, thank you, Sam. Great to be here with you. Most certainly, obviously, we've been trying to get this interview scheduled for a while, and um, and I know you're a super busy guy. You've accomplished a lot in your career, um, obviously, with the first, first, I think, one of the biggest Chicago exits uh, with the big machines. Then you had uh, steel bricks not too long ago, and now building a massive company called G2 Crowd, which is probably a world-renowned company today. So with all these accomplishments uh, under your belt, which one would you say you're most proud of? Well, I think, I feel like it's still a work in progress. So I would say G2, because we're very focused on making that hopefully our biggest, most impactful company ever. Yeah, most certainly. And I think uh, G2 is definitely making a, a big buzz in the marketplace and everybody you know, recognizes that brand. Uh, you've su- successfully accomplished you know, building so many companies and you've, you keep having you know, this passion to go and build new businesses. What, what kind of drives you? What motivates you to just keep going? If you've done it, you've had multiple successful exits before. And I think it is a journey. Or at G2, we've defined our culture as peak. And I think I just love the challenge of having another entrepreneurial peak to climb. And I think it gets me motivated every day to get up and, and build something and overcome challenges and succeed. And so I just have that desire to, to keep building and to keep climbing towards the next peak. And is that, would you say, is that your, uh, your why behind what drives you personally as well? I think so. I think it is really having a peak culture. And when we were starting G2, the co-founders, myself, we all got together. We actually talked about what kind of culture we wanted to build before we even talked about what product we're going to build. Hmm. Can you expand on that? Because that's a completely a different type of a vision of how you go about building a company. Most people, entrepreneurs, just have an idea. They run after the idea more than, hey, let me build a culture that's going to help me get to that idea. Expand on how did you even come up, how did you even arrive at that kind of a concept? Yeah, and for G2 is our second company. And I do think part of it was having the luxury of having Big Machines acquired by Oracle. So we had, we had one success. It's also my first company, Big Machines, really. I just solved, set out to solve a problem. But with G2, we kind of had the luxury of having a little bit more time and a little bit more money. And so we first spent the first week in my basement. This was my house in Lake Forest, the Chicago suburbs. And you know, we just kind of sat down and said, hey, what kind of company do we want to build? And it was also selfish because you know, we wanted to build the kind of company where we could work with joy every day and be excited about doing the work. And we wanted that for all of our team members as well. So we spent that first week brainstorming. And you know, we're really inspired by this entrepreneur, Chip Conley. He built a hotel chain, Joie de Vivre. Later, he went on to be the head of hospitality for Airbnb. 
so very successful entrepreneur, but he wrote this whole book on peak cultures mm -hmm. and what it takes to create that kind of company where your employees really find meaning in their work and where they're truly inspired. Yeah, which brings me to one of the questions that I have is because when I when I looked at your your leadership team, you've kind of had a, a way of just keeping your core team intact almost through the last three or so companies you've built. And I, I always wondered how were you able to do that because it's super hard to keep your core team you know intact, right? Especially when you're exiting and things of that nature. What how what was the kind of the secret sauce of uh, you, the, your leadership style? And some of us, you know, like Tim Andorf, my co-founder who's now running the G2 Track product, but he and I have worked together for 20 years and now across multiple companies. And I, I do think it's that shared passion for building mm -hmm. and you know, striving to the peak and continuing to grow together. And I think the other thing you develop over time is a lot of trust. And you know, I think the team, we all trust each other. They trust us as leaders. And so, because I think it's a very personal choice when you cho join a, choose to join a startup, and you're also taking a big risk as an employee. And so you really have to trust the leadership. And I think the advantage of our team that has worked together across multiple companies, we have that inherent trust. We know what we're good at. We know what our skill lanes are. And we know that ultimately, you know, together we'll overcome challenges and likely find a way to succeed. And having that trust and mutual confidence, I think, is the key to keeping a team together. So who would you say who had who had the biggest influence on your leadership style? Because if any business is success, right, is really the leadership. And obviously you've had the privilege of, you know, through acquisition and mergers and things of that nature, you had to work with a lot of other leaders as well. Can you think of some leaders who really influenced your leadership style? Yeah, and I would say I've been most influenced by Mark Benioff. Hmm. I think the brilliant founder and CEO of Salesforce. And Mark Benioff has now run that company for over 20 years and obviously created a multi-billion dollar global leader. And I really got to know Mark well when he acquired our second company, Steelbrick. And I spent over a year on Mark Benioff's extended leadership team at Salesforce. And I really learned more about you know, how he can build a company of such scale and impact. And part of it is he used this framework called the V2Mom to really align all of his teams, all of his now, I think 30, 40,000 employees around the world. But every year he defines a new V2 mom. And that really sets the vision as well as the methods for how Salesforce can keep succeeding. And so that's, for example, just one of the tools that Mark inspired that we're now using at G2. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard of that concept and I only read like one blog that, uh, uh, that Salesforce has, like just a stranded blog from like 2012 or something. There's not a lot of things that I've seen about it. Can you elaborate on some of the lessons you've learned, maybe specifically how that uh, someone can apply that V2Mom concept for any sort of business? Yeah, and I think and you can even use V2Mom for life because I think what Mark says, once you write it down, it forces you to really commit wholeheartedly to your vision. And he says, you know, 95% of the time at Salesforce, when we write it down, we achieve it. And so I think it's really getting aligned to that commitment. And, and I think like anything else you write down, you know, you iterate on it multiple times with your team. And you know, we did that, we do that at G2, and then we revisit it twice a year. So at G2, we just kicked off our second half fiscal year, and we used that to roll out our new V2 of the team. But you know, we did a leadership offsite in June to really kind of pick it apart, see where are we succeeding? What do we need to change in our V2 mom for the second half so we can achieve our vision? So, which, which brings me to a question about vision because uh, I, I think there's not enough conversation around vision. I've read just recently a book by Michael Hyatt, the whole concept about visionary leadership. Uh, I also just went through a leadership uh, summit, which is, I don't know if you've heard of, heard of Global Leadership Summit. Um, mm -hmm. But there's, there's a lot of 
some people really do talk about leadership and <clears throat> which is a which is a great concept that I, I really aspire and, and learning trying to learn more but talk to me a little bit about like I think a, there's a lot of businesses that stay small um, I don't know if it is the lack of leadership or is it the lack of vision or is it just some business just not destined for greatness they're just going to always remain small tell me a little bit about where is what what part vision plays in a company's growth and success and where where it goes and Sam, I agree with you. Vision has a huge role, and and I do think you know I think some businesses yeah, they probably don't have that vision to go really big. But also sometimes I think that's okay. You know I think there's a famous Chicago entrepreneur Jason Fry with his company Basecamp, and his vision is actually to stay small, and you know he wants to keep Basecamp small because that's what he really enjoys. And I do believe entrepreneurship. I think one of the most powerful things about it is you can shape your own life, your own culture. And so obviously some entrepreneurs love being part of a small niche business and that's what they enjoy and I think that's a totally valid path. Obviously my ambition at G2 is to really build a global leader and so I think if you do want to really grow you have to have that vision to grow. And what I do love about the V2 mom is you know you not only need the vision but then you also need the methods uh, and you need the values and the second V in the V2 mom is all about your values. You know, they're going to guide you as a company as you grow through hardship and and are really your North Star. And then I think your methods is really being conscious also about what steps, you know, what initiatives are you going to drive to achieve your vision. And so I think it's both. You, know, you have to have the vision and then you have to have the plan to execute it. Yeah, which is I think most entrepreneurs, at least uh, in personally talking, right, I, I think I kind of shift toward the strategy quickly as opposed to I just don't know how you would have vision that fires up people and get them to like rally around, right? Uh, maybe it is just a lack of experience or not having done a lot of you know a lot of those kind of vision preparation meeting with other leadership so talk to me a little bit about where where's that where's the vision stops and the strategy kicks in and that you can actually get the vision come to fruition yeah and I do think articulating your vision well is, is key and at G2 now we say our vision is to build a place where you go for software you know because we want you Sam or any business person in the world to just when you're thinking about new software for your business you just think G2 and you'd actually go there, you'd go to g2.com. But I think we did one a lot further. We actually have a kind of a, a one-page written narrative now that details that vision, exactly what it means. And we just did our H2 kickoff. We actually had our global team read our vision. So we picked, the vision has eight paragraphs, so we picked eight different team members from around the world of G2, and they all recorded their videos of them reading their part of the vision. And I think that was really powerful because you know, God, also for me, just to hear our vision and the voice of our own team members, and we had our global team, almost 400 people, all on our kickoff Zoom. So I think we always also you know, make sure we articulate the vision and, uh, and get everyone to really embody it and, and really digest it so that you know, they really understand it and every day they strive towards it. Most certainly, and I think there's also a big dis uh, distinction between the mission and the vision, right? Mission is here and now where we are, but vision is where we're trying to, to, to get to. Uh, and, and talk to me a little bit about how did you come to the conclusion that the vision was the driver for when you, get, when you were building the G2 crowd, right? You said you actually said, we want to see what this company would be, what, what this company would look like. Talk to me a little bit more about that in terms of how you even came to that realization that's where you should start. Yeah, and I think our vision, you know, came from wanting to change our own industry. And I have been an enterprise software entrepreneur for now for 20 years. And I think we all just thought, wow, it's way too hard to discover and buy the right software for your business. And also as entrepreneurs, we thought it was way too hard to sell 
software to other businesses. And so it was really inspired, you know, by wanting to solve our own problems, scratch our own itch, and make our own industry better. And so that really was a vision, you know, we all connected to. And you know, but I think it, but I think you're also right. A vision is a multi-year journey, and you know, it's not achieved in one year. Whereas a mission, I think, is more, as you said, right? It's kind of more the next hill you're going to climb, and it's probably a bit clearer. And I think you need both in any company to really succeed. Makes sense. One of the things that I know about G2 Crowd is more of like a two-sided marketplace, right? One, you have to get the softwares and those companies to be there, and the other side is you want the customers who are ever going to use the software. So when you went about doing that, what were some of the strategies that you employed to make sure that you can bring the both together? Was it? It's like the catch twenty-two concept, right? Which one do you go after first? Getting some, you know, software guys to be here before I go get the users and reviews. What was kind of the strategy behind um, building that? the two-sided marketplace. Yeah, and I think we were inspired by Yelp when we started. I think Yelp started back in like 2005. We started G2 in 2012, and by that time, Yelp was actually a very hot company. They just got public, and so we really also learned from what they did. And I think what they also figured out, and they, Yelp started in San Francisco, and they got this amazing crowd of, you know, kind of young hipsters that love restaurants to start writing all this amazing review content. And we really thought, wow, for software, we need to do the same thing. And just like Yelp only picked San Francisco, we picked one category and we picked CRM software. And that's really because our first company, Big Machines, we were a Salesforce partner, Oracle, Microsoft CRM partner. So we knew the world of CRM really well. And we took the same strategy. We basically reached out to all of our friends on LinkedIn that we knew to be CRM experts. And we had them write you know, authentic reviews of their CRM software. And that provided us the content in that first category then to start to attract the software buyers. And, and I think now we've continued to do that, but now G2, instead of having just one CRM category, we have 1,800 categories of software. And I think we always repeat that cycle where we start by really trying to find the users that either you know love or maybe hate the, the software they're using and get them to share their authentic opinions. And that's what creates the draw for software buyers to come to G2 in the first place. And we believe, you know, once you have the buyers, it's easier to bring the sellers on board as well. Yeah, I mean, prior to G2, it was maybe sites like uh, Gartner and all those places where you would get your reviews, and it was not easily accessible. You would have to spend money to even uh, to get those. And now you've completely, you know, changed the picture of how you would go about finding information about a software. So what what part do you believe uh, social proof plays in, in the B2B sector, especially SaaS space? What, fa you know, what do you think is the role of social proof. Yeah, and we think social proof is massive in B2B, and especially to establish trust. And last year at G2, we did a trust survey, and it turned out, probably no surprise to you, but most software buyers actually don't trust vendors. I think you know 93% said they don't trust software salespeople. We surveyed over a thousand different B2B software buyers. And you know, then our, C our CMO, Ryan, said, oh wow, he can't feel too good either because 92% of software buyers also don't trust marketing. Hmm. And, and I think the reality is our industry, we've all been guilty of this, you know, where we announce these grand visions and then sometimes it takes us years to deliver them. So software buyers have become skeptical and, you know, they really don't trust the vendor. But who do they trust? You know, they really trust their peers. And so that's what G2 has always been about is, hey, give you trusted peer reviews, peer advice. And that's you know will allow you to make much much better software buying decisions, and I think that's all you know what you would call social proof. 
Yeah, and most importantly, I think, uh, yes, there, there is that aspect of getting customers to buy the software using the proof, but also that the customer feedback. If, if you look at the G2 crowd categories, especially for like marketing automation, you would see softwares that has like thousands of reviews, and then you have a couple of hundreds, sometimes even in the lower uh, hundreds, right? And you wonder like why there's not a, such a de you know a desire to go and brag about this software. It, it really tells the story about the user experience and how good of a tool that is, right? And it's it, it, it can be used to benefit the company to go and figure out what works and what isn't working and what is the customers what the customers are really saying about the tool to go and improve the product too because I, I feel bad for some of those software companies that has barely any reviews on G2. Mm. No, I think you're right. It can be a great source of customer feedback. And one of my favorite examples of that is Eric Wan, mm -hmm. the famous now founder and CEO of Zoom. And Eric spoke at our Reach conference last year for V2, and he talked all about how his core mission for Zoom has always been to deliver happiness and deliver happiness to his customers, also to his employees. And what he loves about G2, and he's probably unique, he actually loves the negative feedback. And because on every review, we ask, what do you really like about the software? Also, what do you dislike? How to get better? And he said, and for a while, he was personally reading every review, especially the dislikes. And Eric Wan is also a brilliant engineer. So he takes that negative feedback, right away turns it into code to improve Zoom and really deliver that happiness to every customer. And I think the best entrepreneurs, they do look at it that way, where obviously it always hurts a bit. I know it does for me. Getting negative feedback, especially about your baby, your product hurts. But then I think, you know, if you kind of say, oh, wow, how can it inspire you know, me? How can it inspire you to really build a better product? And so I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's a great way to you know, get that honest customer feedback and keep getting better. Most certainly. And I think you were just talking about what Tony Shea said about Zappos, too. That was also his vision to deliver happiness, I think, if I'm not mistaken. He was kind of yeah. had it, but completely different product category. Uh, obviously, Gonar, we see a lot of success stories about you everywhere we look. I think you were just on the uh, just recent of Tech 50 in Chicago, um, and you're all over the place. You have a lot of success that everyone talks about. I'm sure through the experience of building multiple companies, you've had some some failures as well. Are there anything you can share from your failures, the lessons that you've learned, or advice that you might have for people to avoid such mistakes in the future? Yeah, no, I think we have had lots of challenges and made many mistakes. And frankly, even 20 years in as an entrepreneur. I still make a lot of mistakes, um, but I think one of the, the biggest lessons I learned in my first company, you know, it's big machines, and we started the company at the beginning of 2000, way back when the internet.com era was just getting started. And, uh, and I remember by 2003, we were almost bankrupt. Hmm. And frankly, you know, we'd squandered almost $20 million in venture capital. We were down to kind of our last million dollars, and we were still losing money, and frankly, wasn't able to raise anymore. And I think what I really learned at that moment was, how important sales was, and you know, up until then, I'd had a sales leader, and frankly, I couldn't afford one anymore, so I had to let them go and kind of take over sales myself. And so, really learned the hard way that as an entrepreneur, it's just so key to get close to your customers, really understand what they need, and then also really be able to articulate your value proposition in a way that you know that they will buy your solution, and then obviously make sure you deliver that happiness once they do buy. But I think it was really you know a hard time for me, but I, I really learned from it. And then I think that's also one thing we figured out at Big Machines was how do you then really build a sales playbook? And once I and we as a founder have learned how to sell the product, you know, how do you then teach that to tens, ultimately hundreds of sales reps? And so that was a really hard lesson we learned at the very beginning that you know I think we're now always taking forward. 
Wow, that's uh, that's a story I never heard that you actually had uh, such an experience with a big machine. So what was the turnaround? How did you turn around and and with that remaining one million dollars of runway to get to where I think it was up close to five hundred million when you sold it, right? Uh, big yeah. Machine. Yeah, I think what we did is, I mean, it was, and I really focused on sales, and the way I looked at prioritizing, it was one deal at a time. So my priority action item always became, what's the next step to close the next deal that was on the table? And so maybe very good for Coffee for Closers podcast, but I did realize I just had to do whatever it took to close the next deal. Because we also, at that point, we shifted to organic, you know, because we'd spent almost all our money, and we are still losing a bit, but we, the other painful thing we had to do, we had to cut the company down from 70 to 20 people. Uh, but we were still losing a bit of money, but then we just so determined, hey, now we're gonna close enough deals so we can actually get to that break-even point. And we managed to do that in about a year or two. And from there until Oracle acquired the company, we actually grew it organically with positive cash flow because we were always closing more deals, bringing more revenue than we were spending. And so, you know, it was really kind of learning old-fashioned old entrepreneurship. So it wasn't, the, it wasn't the fact that you didn't have a product, you actually had the product, you just weren't doing a good job in marketing and selling, it seems like. So that's where it seemed like your biggest problem was. True, and because you know we had, in the part of the venture capital like from 2000 to 2003 we spent well, was in product development. And I think also the reason we didn't quit was, we only had about a dozen live customers, frankly, but they were all having success with the product. And so my co-founder, Chris and I, that's why we decided that instead of quitting, you know, giving back the last million, we said, let's keep going because our first dozen customers, we're seeing a ton of value. We were helping companies. We were very early, and that's the other challenge, frankly. We were probably a bit too early. We had a cloud sales configuration, sales quoting software, frankly, before most businesses wanted the cloud. And so it was also a very hard environment still to sell that kind of a solution. So we did have to really raise our game, right, and really articulate the ROI. Because back in 2003, frankly, companies were still very skeptical about the internet skeptical about the cloud, can I trust it, will my customers use it? Yeah, so there were a lot of still early challenges to overcome, um, but but we saw the customers that did bet on us had success, and so then we just had to go out and sell that with more conviction. Yeah, which reminds me of, you know, even companies like Friendster and uh, and I think it was MySpace, and all those guys were kind of pre premature before internet was freely available, people, have, people didn't have smartphones, and like you said, that that they didn't take off. Whereas you know, Facebook and any other social platform came after the fact. They really did see that that growth trajectory because of the adoption. So, which brings me to your, my, my, the mindset question for me, because obviously you you had to take matters to your own hands and become a sales guy, and somehow you know, like hey, go from that founder CEO role to like becoming a sales role. And and oftentimes that's not what someone wants to do, right? You you kind of still want to remain as a leader. Talk to me a little bit about the mindset that you have in terms of going at, going at it uh, and succeeding. Because having known you for probably about seven years now, I've always seen you to be a super humble guy, easily approachable. So tell me a little bit about the mindset of what kind of drives you from that standpoint, from a mindset. And um, thanks, Sam. I know you're also an entrepreneur, and I think you know it's just a very humbling process. Because you, know, you, you have these tremendous highs like the day you start, like, oh, I'm going to change the world, right? And then from there, you keep getting humbled. You know, customers say no, investors say no, recruits say no. So it's kind of, a, you know, I think very humbling, which I think is ultimately good for your soul. And especially when big machines almost fail, you know, kind of realize, wow, I don't have any magic bullets. You know, we're going to have to grind through it and really listen to our customers. And, and I think that's something, I think it probably, in a lot of ways, I think it was good for me that our first company wasn't an immediate success. Yeah, because I think it, it did really make us realize, wow, customers are so important. We have to figure out what they want. We have to articulate that to them. We have to deliver it. And 
And I don't have any magic bullets, and I still believe that even 20 years later, you know, I'm still looking for that magic bullet. Maybe you have it, Sam. But it's not, I've, never, I've never found it, you know. So it does take continuing to listen to your customers, listen to your employees, and uh, you know, trying to get better every day. Yeah. So, which brings me to another question, especially as this growing company, right? The the scaling comes from having systems, process, and pr- putting right people in the right seat, and being able to kind of replicate that, right? So, when you're starting out, like, explain to me some of those companies that you've built. Were you playing more of a, a systems process guy to build the necessary tools in place to hire and train and uh, get people go, or you always found like, hey, I gotta have that integrated kind of like the traction book talks about. I'm the visionary guy. I don't have the, the know-how or the pers- patience to go build the systems and process, but I need someone else who can actually do that. How, how did you do in your prior businesses that you built? Right. And I think as you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to wear many hats. And especially in my first company, Big Machines, I, I kind of did both. You know, whereas I mentioned we really struggling I had to become the sales leader, but I also became the Salesforce admin. You know, so I set up, because as we were learning what sales process works, how we want to grade our pipelines, et cetera, I was building that in the Salesforce myself. And I became like the ultimate Salesforce admin, I believe. I built my own dashboards, kept tuning the opportunity stages, and, and tried to build our best practice sales process right into the system. And, uh, and I think as an entrepreneur, right, at times, I do think you kind of have to be able to build both hats. Obviously, as you get bigger then, and that's another challenge as an entrepreneur, I also had to learn, at some point you have to let go. And I think it, Big Machines took me like nine years to give that Salesforce admin role to somebody else, because obviously at some point it doesn't scale, right? At some point I had to shift towards being more of a leader, and yeah, you know, we had at some point over 300 employees, right? And so then you have to focus more on being a leader, and you can't be on every deal anymore. You can't define your own processes, right? You have to hire sales ops people that define sales processes, finance people that create financial controls, financial process. So I think that's what's fun and interesting about entrepreneurship, right? At times, especially at the beginning, I remember even when we were starting G2, I did the accounting first. I signed up myself for QuickBooks Online, and about a year and a half, we didn't have an accountant, right? In fact, we didn't have any revenue, so the accounting was not hard, but I just did it myself. Hmm. You know? And then obviously now we have a great VP of Finance, Ted, and he's with the whole finance team. So at some point, then you let it go and delegate it and hire someone that can do that job better than you. Because also now I realize maybe there's a much better Salesforce administrator. At G2, we have a great one, John Solomon, and now he has like 20 certs, and I could probably only get one cert. So it's that like, a fun combination of, at the beginning, you have to do a lot of things, and then you also have to figure out when you hand them off to someone who's better at those jobs than, than you are. Which brings me to a question, because oftentimes, like the entrepreneurs, like you said, they're control freaks, and oftentimes yeah. they're very hard at delegating. I, I'm, a, I'm a perfectionist, which makes me a procrastinator, because I'm waiting for things to be perfect, so I'll never get anything done. So how did you, like, are there areas of the business that you are more passionate about that you just pursue that area of the business and then certain things you just want to know the KPIs of how that specific business unit or the business function is operating? If so, what what are some of those areas where you're so passionate about? Yeah, and I do love, um, I do love, I do love customer conversations. That's probably number one. And what's cool about G2, right, we're a platform that empowers peer entrepreneurs. I love that. In some ways, I built the company for myself. Because I do believe G2 now is the best way if you have a, an amazing new product, obviously like Eric Wan from Zoom, but there's also many early stage entrepreneurs that are now listing their products on G2 and having their customers share authentic reviews to validate their brand and help them grow. And so I love that, right? And every day I'm doing multiple Zooms with entrepreneurs like yourself and also learning about their business, but selling and sharing the G2 vision and why our platform is amazing for them. So I love doing that. And frankly, I also enjoy you know, just selling the company vision 
to investors, industry events, podcasts like this one. So I really love being that external evangelist and then also using those conversations to really inform our company's strategy. I think there's also no better way to really know what's going on than the user. Because internally, sometimes we'll convince ourselves of things, but then you talk to the real user, the real customer, and they tell you something very different. And I think the customer is ultimately right. And so I think it's also the best way to learn what's really going on in the field. And uh, and so that's where you know, I still enjoy spending a lot of time. And my goal at G2, and I think I've made a lot of progress there this year, added a great new chief product officer, Sarah Rossio, just hired a new chief revenue officer, Mike Weir, who came from LinkedIn. And they both have that kind of next level scale experience, so they can set up most of the, do the hiring, the day to day operations, and I can still focus on you know being out there as a visionary, selling G two, learning, and helping tune that vision and strategy. But having leaders that can you know execute most of the plan, drive most of the operations. And how does an entrepreneur go about kind of figuring out where where is their strength and where they should focus on and where they need to let go of? Yeah, and I think there's a really interesting book, uh, you know, talking about your zone of genius, and I think really finding your zone of genius. I think one of the ways you find it is really, I think, finding those areas of business where you feel you feel like you're in the zone, and there's some things you're doing where time's flying and you just feel like it's an easy flow, like you're getting a lot of stuff done, but it doesn't feel effortful. And I think that's a great indicator. Wow, this is your zone of genius. You know, see areas where you have genuine enjoyment, enthusiasm, and it feels easy. And, uh, and I think if you can double down on those areas, right, then you will be uh, contributing your best gifts to your business, to the world. And uh, and then obviously the challenge is to figure out how you build a great team that can do the rest of the stuff that you're not so good at, right, where, where you feel frustrated and it feels like a grind. Um, and I think you're never done with that, but but that's kind of what I'm, what I'm working on. Which brings me to a question because a lot of times I think the in our in our day today you know tech companies are notorious for raising capital they're just good at it they just go raise you know ten million twenty million I know I, I think G two went over hundred million right they, you just raised over hundred million so essentially the cash is so easy to access and it's easy to go find and you know hire really top talent but when you're an entrepreneur you're self funded you're probably doing you know bootstrapped and you don't have the luxury of going and hiring those next you know, key leadership team. What have you seen work really well in terms of um, what, so, you know, shoestring budget companies are doing to really scale without really having to take excess capital from anybody else? And like I said, I, I lived that part of big machines, you know, where we had to go organic growth. Mm -hmm. And there are many great companies built that way. And again, Jason Fried, right, he really advocates for bootstrapping. And it is a lot easier now than when I started because it's now SaaS in the cloud. I mean, for literally pennies, right, you can set up your hosting on AWS or Azure. So I think it's a lot more possible today to bootstrap. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think it's, you know, but obviously capital, if you really want to be a global leader, most businesses that do become global leaders, right, like HubSpot, and I believe you're still a close partner of them, obviously at some point they do raise a lot of capital to help them get that global leadership. And, and I think it's as an entrepreneur having a sense, you know, what is your vision? Like, do you want to be a global leader? and What's the right time to shift from bootstrapping to really going to you know venture growth? And uh, and I think it's yeah. There's no one right answer for any entrepreneur, or any business, and you just have to get a feel and having good advisors that maybe have been there. I right, can help you figure out what's the right time to, to use that venture capital and what's the right time to stay organic and, and keep bootstrapping. And it seems as though I mean I often think that the sales is the lifeblood of, of any business, and I think you've proven with your turnaround story of Big Machine how. 
within just that $1 million runway you had, you were able to recover the revenue and get back into to running, right? I think a lot of times we're, we're, again, as entrepreneurs, we're waiting for the perfect product that's perfect fit for the market. And oftentimes it might take three years to get to that perfect day. And that may not be the best course of action. Get something that people would be willing to pay for and figure out how can you sell more of it to really fund the growth of the company. I don't know if you would agree with that, that sort of an approach too. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you have to have enough you can sell, right? And probably even more important, have a product that customers are valuing. Mm-hmm. You know, ideally, they're writing great reviews on G2, but but they're confirming, hey, Sam, your solution really works for me. I'm getting an ROI. And once you have that, right, and you have, let's say, 100 of those customers you've been able to sell, you have a repeatable sales motion, and you also can prove, hey, you can deliver value to your customers consistently, that is oftentimes the right time to then say, okay, now how do I get from 100 to 1,000 or 10,000 customers? And that's oftentimes where venture capital can help because our world is noisy, as you know. Mm-hmm. On deep alone, there's 80,000 different SaaS products listed. And then as an entrepreneur, if you really want to break through, it does typically require additional investment in sales and marketing to get to all your target customers. And um, so I think that, yeah, and then it can be exciting as well, right? And to enter that next phase where you try to bring your product to every customer around the world. That's crazy to imagine when you started, you said the cloud was just getting started and nobody was willing to even put their customer data there. Now, 82,000 SaaS products on G2. And I'm sure that's not even, that's not an exhaustive list too. I'm sure there's hundreds of other companies probably haven't listed themselves here. That's, that's, that is crazy. So obviously you have a crazy schedule. You're, you're leading this massive team and you're also an advisor in much, a bunch of other organizations. What are some productivity hacks that you have in terms of get, you know, getting things done and making sure that you have focused work? And I do think the biggest thing for me is building a good leadership team. And like I said, in the last few months of G2, we've added a couple of great leaders. And that, that really is what I, you know, I think, kind of really the only thing that really frees me up as an entrepreneur. Yeah, because now you know, having a strong chief product officer, chief revenue officer, they're kind of running the day-to-day well. And in Q2, we actually just you know, were able to exceed our target results. And that gives me a lot of freedom to go evangelize, talk to customers, you know, think about new products. And uh, and so that's really what I'm always focused on is, hey, if I got a great team behind me, then I kind of have the freedom that where I have a lot less obligations and meetings I have to go to, and I can more choose you know, to go work on the, the fun stuff. And, uh, and so I think that, that for any entrepreneur, like the, the biggest thing, right? Get the, if you can align the team behind you and have them driving most of the business, then you have the freedom to ever work on the future. If you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? Mm. Well, I think, uh, like I said, I, I keep making new mistakes. You know, I'm thinking even at G2 last year, there was, you know, we did go out, raise $100 million, and there's probably a period where we overinvested a bit. You know, we got a bit ahead of our revenue growth plan. and. So I somewhat had to relearn the lesson of you know, kind of going back to being more scrappy. And so this year, you know, we shifted back to smart growth. And we started doing that last December. Craig and I said, I'm glad I did it before COVID hit. Yeah, because it did COVID for us, at least in Q1, slow, slow down our revenue growth. And we mainly saw the marketers. And when COVID first hit, I think most marketers kind of just hit pause you know, for a few weeks. So that affected our bookings growth. And so I was really glad that we did shift to smart growth. And But, you know, it was also painful. We did have to let a few team members go. And, and then I wish, like, obviously, wow, I'd anticipate that better and maybe stepped off the gas a little sooner so that I wouldn't have had to do that. You know, So I think it's, you know, it's, it's kind of humbling for me again. And so I think, you know, always keeping that sense for what's really happening in the market and ideally anticipating a little bit better so that, you know, you can make the ride smoother for everybody. 
So what's next for you? Are you working on any books or anything of that sort? Uh, no books yet. Um, and right now, I think focus very focused on you know, getting G2 to where we want it to go. And, uh, and I think like I said, what is cool about G2 and what I could see my next chapter in life you know, beyond G2 being is doing more advising, helping more entrepreneurs. And, uh, but what I do love, it's kind of built into G2 because I get to talk to entrepreneurs like you, Sam. And literally, you know, probably in a year, I talked to like 200 entrepreneurs. And I always love to get to know them, get their story, their product, and also talk to them about how G2 can help them. But it's also a great way for me to you know, get that more exposure and you know, hopefully over time, like I said, help, help more other entrepreneurs go big. Makes sense. And obviously, it, it gives you a, a, a first-hand information about what's happening in the marketplace, too. So you can get it, you know, sure. when, when you're talking to those entrepreneurs. Uh, any parting wisdom for our audience? Uh, well, I, I love your theme, Sam, Coffees from Closers. And, and like I said earlier, that was the hardest lesson I had to learn. I had to learn how to close deals. And uh, so I think as an entrepreneur, obviously, the, the sooner you can do that, the better. And just stay focused on your customers, right? Listen to them, take care of them. And ultimately, I think good, good things will happen. Yeah, and even as the CEO, right, selling is the best way to get in front of the customer and hear first, firsthand what they appreciate, what they want to see, and what they don't like. Yeah, and, and Sam, you said this earlier, like also really listening to the negative feedback. And like I said, it still always hurts, you know, when mm -hmm. somebody calls your baby ugly. But I think taking that to heart in a good way, internalizing it, and then obviously finding the themes. You can't react to every customer complaint, but if you see a lot of 10 customers in a row, said they really wanted this or they really want me to include this feature then and obviously then you do it right and so that can really guide you yeah and honestly honestly a g2 plug because we've actually used the common customer feedback as a way to even use in our value proposition for our, our SaaS clients we have a lot of SaaS clients that we do marketing for so we've taken comments from there used in our campaigns we've also used it on our home page of client campaigns uh, clients website so it, the customer feedbacks actually even tailors your value proposition when it comes to marketing too, from from what we've seen since. Wow. No, thank you. That's that's great to hear, Sam. Glad you're helping your clients take that customer feedback to heart. Most certainly. Well, I certainly appreciate you sparing this afternoon with me and sharing your wisdom. Uh, wish you all the best in the in the days ahead. Thanks again. No, thank you, Sam. Thank great you. to be here with you. Thank you. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.